Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me again, if you would. Father, we do confess that we are gathered together this morning in what very much seem to be uncertain times for us, and we we stand in these days unsure of, of the future, uh, confused, perplexed, perhaps even distressed at uh, injustice, at corruption, at, at a world that does not function as it ought. And yet, Father, um, these days really are not unusual in that this has always been the way that the world is. This has always been the world in which your people live their lives, in which they manifest uh, the fragrance and the life of Christ. This is the world in which your people have always testified to the creator God, to the God of recreation, to the God whose purpose is to renew all things. And you have always required of your people that they would speak truth to power, that they would testify that amongst all the kings and rulers of the earth, there is one king who presides over all. The gospel truth that Christ is Lord is the proclamation that Caesar is not. And I pray, Father, that we would even be encouraged in the sense that as we return again to this marvelous epistle penned 2,000 years ago to these uh, Hebrew Christians, that we would recognize that perhaps we have a greater recognition of our connection with them than ever before, for they were a suffering group. They were a fearful group. They were a group that struggled in many ways. Uh, they were suffering the uncertainty of the future, imprisonment, persecution, the seizing of their property, living truly as aliens and strangers in a world that was not worthy of them. And so, Father, these times remind us that we are such as they. We have not suffered as they suffered, but we have the same obligation of faithfulness, the same responsibility and privilege to bear the fragrance of Christ in truth, which means to testify by our hearts, by our attitudes, by our words, by our countenance, by our actions, that we serve the one who is king indeed. And so I pray that you would encourage us, us, us in this time, that you would, by your spirit, give us peace of heart and mind, that we would see that we do not need to have apparent security and stability around us to be secure and stable. 
but that our God, as we were reminded, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is worthy of our trust, worthy of our love, worthy of our confidence. So meet us in this time and do build us up. Give us peace. Give us joy. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, we continue on in chapter 7 of Hebrews. Uh, Again, a section in which the writer has returned to this topic of Melchizedek and the, the significance of Melchizedek in the salvation history leading up to and, and uh, finding its own destiny in the Messiah himself. And I've said that this chapter is broken down into three primary sections. First of all, the writer gave us a general portrait of the person of Melchizedek. Again, all of this content being drawn from just two passages that deal with Melchizedek, the one narrative description of him in Genesis 14, and then the reference specifically to a priesthood associated with him in Psalm 110, which is very much thematic throughout uh, the Hebrews epistle. But the writer uh, produces for his readers a, a portrait, a brief kind of biographical sketch of Melchizedek, and then he turns to the greatness of Melchizedek, specifically with respect to Abraham and Levi. And as I said last time, the greatness of Melchizedek relative to Levi, or to Abraham rather, is in a certain sense to be expected because of the way Genesis 14 shows his interaction with Abraham. But the writer had a larger point than simply comparing two men. And ultimately, even comparing him through Abraham with Levi. The the writer's comparison of Melchizedek with Abraham and Levi is concerned ultimately with the significance of those two men. Not just the men themselves, but what they represent and what they represent in God's purposes. We saw that uh, God had established his covenant with Abraham. Abraham was God's man. God's dealings with the world, ultimately God's purpose for the whole creation, was bound up in the man Abraham. All that God would be for his creation, he would be in and through Abraham. And God affirmed and blessed that relationship, we see in Genesis 14, through his regal priest. It's in that sense that you see the greatness of Melchizedek relative to Abraham. He's presented as a man whose priesthood and priestly distinction, and this is important again, his priesthood and his priestly distinction existed outside of and even prior to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. God's purposes for his creation are bound up in Abraham, and yet in in an important way, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Greater than Abraham. Because it is in and through Melchizedek, ultimately, that God's covenant promise and the outworking of that covenant promise with Abraham is in and through this priestly person, this regal priest associated with Melchizedek. So the priesthood with Melchizedek predates the uh, Abrahamic priesthood, so the Levitical priesthood, and yet it flows through it and extends beyond it. 
such that it transcends the priesthood associated with Abraham. In fact, all that God had bound up in Abraham would only be realized through the realization of the regal priesthood associated with Melchizedek. And therefore, his greatness with respect to Levi is that his priesthood ultimately speaks to the reality that lies back of and transcends and would ultimately be the destiny uh, unto which the Levitical priesthood was working and and uh, portraying. And so that leads us into the third part of this. First, there's a biographical sketch of Melchizedek. Then the writer establishes his greatness relative to Abraham and Levi. And then by extension, the greatness or the superiority of Melchizedek and his priesthood relative to the Levitical priesthood. And then ultimately where the writer's going with this, and we'll touch on this today, is that the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek points to the superiority of the covenant associated with Melchizedek relative to the covenant associated with Levi and the Levitical priesthood. So the balance of chapter 7 then deals with that particular issue of the priesthood and wrapped into that the covenant associated with each of these priesthoods. And it, it's, it, it doesn't lend itself from verse 11 through verse 28. In, in my mind, it doesn't lend itself to a very neat kind of outline structure. It's kind of an organic presentation, but we can at least say that there's a movement in the sense that first the writer deals in more general terms with the parameters of this relationship between priesthood and covenant as it relates to the two men and their respective priesthoods. And then the second part, he gets more specific, looking at ways in which that superiority actually expresses itself. So I want today just to deal with verses 11 through 19, the more general considerations of these priesthoods, uh, and specifically in their covenantal terms. So read with me then, uh, beginning at verse 11, chapter 7 of Hebrews. He says, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? In other words, a Levitical priest. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken, the Messiah himself, belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clear still if another priest does indeed arise according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Once again, citing Psalm 110. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. 
So again, what he's doing is dealing with this, this relative worth or value or supremacy of these two priesthoods, but specifically within their covenantal context. And he's kind of treating this at the macro level. He's introducing that dynamic. He'll start getting into more specifics in the balance of chapter uh, 7 and then through chapter 8 and even into chapter 9, where he'll deal with issues of sacrifice, temple, the whole uh, issues of, of the priesthood uh, concerning which Melchizedek comes as the greater priest. So this first part then I'm titling, this, this larger section in chapter 7, I, I'm titling the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood. But this week, specifically, that superiority demonstrated in the imperfection of the Levitical order. The imperfection of the Levitical order. In order to see the comparison that the writer is making here between these two priesthoods, again, we have to understand their relationship to this idea of covenant and specifically the respective covenants that each is associated with. And the writer's fundamental thesis, and this will be important from this point forward, but it's certainly important for the way we understand all of the scriptures and the New Testament maybe in particular, The writer's thesis is that there is an intrinsic relationship between priesthood and covenant. Specifically, between here, the Sinai covenant, the law of Moses, and the Levitical priesthood. Sometimes we call it the Mosaic covenant. But it's important to recognize when the writer here refers to law, he's talking about the Sinai covenant. He's not talking about the relation of the priesthood to a collection of commandments or rules or directives. He's talking about the relation of the priesthood to this thing called the Sinai covenant, the law of Moses. And what he says in terms of the relationship that exists between them, which is intrinsic, is that the priesthood was the basis of the covenant. On the basis of the priesthood, the people received the law, the covenant at Sinai. God ordained the the Levitical priesthood to mediate his covenant relationship with his people both in terms of instruction and in terms of remediation, remedying problems. It's so important when we think about this idea of the law of Moses to not think about some sort of abstract collection of, again, commandments and directives, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. The law of Moses was the covenant, and a covenant is a contractual instrument that establishes a relationship. We talk about the marriage covenant. It establishes a relationship between a man and a woman that has a certain definition and brings with that definition certain prescriptions such that righteousness under the covenant amounts to conformity to the relationship that is defined and prescribed by the covenant. In other words, righteousness for the man in the marriage covenant is authentic, fully uh, conformed husbandry as that covenant defines it. 
Business contracts are the same way. You read a business contract and you have this party hereafter referred to this and this party hereafter referred to as this. And what the covenant will do is define the relationship between the covenanting parties. And if it's two companies forming a contract, that, that arrangement isn't going to pertain most likely to everything pertaining to the two companies. But in a certain arena with respect to certain things, they are establishing a relationship with one another. And the covenant lays out the terms of that relationship, the obligations that those terms... that. Uh, are imposed upon them and the sanctions for non-performance as well as the benefits of compliance. That's how contracts work and covenants are the same thing. So the law of Moses was God establishing, and I've said this before, it was God establishing with the Abrahamic people, formalizing with them as a nation the relationship that he had first established with Abraham. So the law of Moses was not some new thing. God said, okay, I've got this thing with Abraham, this covenant with Abraham. Okay, now I'll do something different, you know, hundreds of years later with with his descendants. What it was, was God fulfilling his oath to Abraham that I will take your descendants and they will be my people and I will be their God. So the law of Moses was ratifying the Abrahamic relationship with all of the terms and conditions and obligations and sanctions associated with that with Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel. So the law of Moses bound Israel to Yahweh as a covenant son to a covenant father. Israel is my son, my monogenes, my only begotten. Tell Pharaoh, let my son go. And the, the, the relationship is sometimes spoken of in terms of a husband and a wife. Zion was the covenant wife who bore children for Yahweh. But that itself was still the same father-son relationship between the people and, the, and uh, God himself. So God ordained the priesthood, the priestly system, to administer and to preserve that father-son relationship. The priests were to teach knowledge, and the way in which they taught knowledge was they taught the people to understand this God who had covenanted with them and understand who they were in relation to the God who had formed the covenant. Most people couldn't read But the priests, it was their responsibility, and and even later the scribes came into the picture, that they were to teach knowledge and they were to remediate problems within that covenant relationship. The relationship as the law defined it and prescribed it. So Israel's priests stood between God and his people And their ministration, which was from them unto God and from God back to them, was vital to the covenant relationship and its continuance. So the relationship between the Levitical priesthood and the law of Moses was that the covenant actually was based in the priesthood. 
which says that there could not be a covenant without the priesthood. Well, why is that? And that's where he begins now to flesh out why exactly that is necessary. The law that was based on the priesthood was necessary in the sense that the relationship had to be mediated. Why? Because the relationship between Israel and God was defined by alienation. The law of Moses, when when God made his covenant with Israel, he said, Israel is my son, I have taken you to myself. The Abrahamic covenant and its, its terms, its circumstances, its purposes are now given over to you. Effectively, Israel's sonship was in order that through them all the families of the earth would be blessed, the Abrahamic mandate. But there was a problem, which was that though the covenant defined Israel as son of God, and at the heart of that covenant obligation was the responsibility of love, right? And, the, and even in Jesus' day, the Jews understood that. What is the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. It flows out of it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is the law and the prophets, The covenant was, the law of Moses was not a collection of rules and regulations that God thought up one day or that somehow conformed to his morality in some abstract sense. It was the definition of what it looks like for this people to live authentically as image children. That's why it has both a regal and a priestly definition to it. And we've talked about that in the past. But there was a fundamental problem. Israel was Yahweh's son in name, and by covenant definition and by covenant prescription, they were a people elected to sonship in Abraham and obligated, the terms of the covenant for them is that they were obligated to fulfill their election on behalf of the world, but the problem is they couldn't do it. They not only didn't do it, they couldn't do it. If you go back and you read Ezekiel 20, which it's taking place, Ezekiel's already in Babylon, and the temple is about to fall, the city's about to fall. All of this thing of the Israelite kingdom is now coming to an end. We're at the very end of that time. And God, with Ezekiel, who was a priest, rehearses Israel's history. And he said, when you were in Egypt, you didn't know me. I had to reintroduce myself to you, even though you were the descendants of Abraham. And I brought you out for my own sake, and you didn't follow me. But I preserved you for my own sake. And you wandered in the the wilderness for 40 years because you didn't know me. You wouldn't obey me. But I brought in your children, but they didn't obey me. And it's just this, it's, it's a rehearsal of Israel's history with God beginning with Egypt. And the verdict is, you've never been faithful children to me, ever. This is the great tension that the Old Testament scriptures build, is that this entity, Israel, the Abrahamic people, in whom all of God's purposes for the creation, not just this world, not just the human race, but the whole creation under the curse, all of that depends on Israel being Israel. 
And yet Israel can't be Israel. It shows over and over again that it's unable to be the son of God. And the scriptures create this tension where they say, what's going to be the answer? How is God going to see to it that his covenant with Abraham will be fulfilled? And ultimately, the answer the scriptures give is, I will bring a new Israel out of Israel. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but this is the way in which the covenant and the priesthood are working together. So God had covenanted with an unbelieving and unfaithful people who were incapable of being and doing what the covenant said they were and what they were to do. It's like, again, you know, a a man and a woman covenanting together in this thing called marriage, and one of them is utterly incapable of fulfilling that covenant relationship. Only a priestly system of instruction and remediation could in any sense hold that relationship together. And we're going to see more as we move through Hebrews how exactly that system held things together. So the Sinai covenant, the law of Moses, the covenant, uh, uh, if we call it the Mosaic covenant, but the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai had the Levitical priesthood as its fundamental premise, but also its necessary premise. There could be no covenant relationship without some sort of mediating agency that would both oversee and mitigate the alienation that existed between covenant father and covenant son. And any of you who've read through the Old Testament, you see God's constant indictment of Israel is that they are unfaithful children. Zion has borne harlotrous children for Yahweh. And the promise in Jeremiah 31 is the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, not according to the one I made with their fathers when I took them out of Egypt, for they did not keep my covenant, though I was a husband to them. So God established the Levitical system to hold this relationship together, but in the context of alienation. And we're going to see that even as we look at the way in which the priesthood worked itself out. God was in the midst of his people, but hidden from them, remote from them. They couldn't get at him. Only one priest could, and only once a year, and even then in a fearful way. The God who was in the midst of his people was really not the God of the people, and they were not his people, according to the promise to Abraham. That promise had not been realized. So God put this system in place to manage the relationship, but it couldn't, it itself couldn't solve the problem it was put in place to address. Why? Because the priests were also in need of remediation. Just consider Yom Kippur itself, the great high holy day in Israel's calendar. That was the one day of the year, and the writer's going to deal with this down the road. It was the one day of the year when a priest, only the high priest, could actually enter into the Holy of Holies. The tabernacle and later the temple were set up as two separate chambers. You had the outer room and the inner room. 
And the priests themselves could go into the outer room, and that's where the lampstand was that they kept lit and trimmed the wicks and kept the oil. And you had the table, the bread of the presence, that they changed out the loaves of bread. And you had the altar of incense there in front of the veil where they would burn incense. But behind the veil was the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where God himself dwelt in his Shekinah or Shekinah glory cloud. God enthroned between the wings of the cherubim. And no one went in there, only the high priest once a year. But the first thing the high priest had to do, you read in Leviticus 16, when he went in there, the first thing he did was offer the blood of a bull, a sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of his family. The priests shared the same estrangement, the same alienation as the people they mediated for. So far from being able to bring father and son, covenant father and son together in the intimacy that the law of Moses defined and prescribed, Israel's priests perpetuated that alienation and in many instances exacerbated it. Jeremiah was the son of a priest, and so there's a lot of priestly content in his prophecy. Just read the first eight chapters alone of Jeremiah, and you see this. The priesthoods were, the priests were as implicated in Israel's idolatry and unbelief and waywardness as the prophets were, as the people were, as the rulers were. From prophet to priest, my people are unfaithful. And they proclaim peace, peace, when there is no peace. You see the same thing in Ezekiel's prophecy. The priests were themselves a part of the problem. They were supposed to teach the people knowledge, but they taught the people to stray from the Lord. They exacerbated the alienation. They exacerbated the the falseness and, and the distance of the covenant relationship. You see it already with uh, Aaron's sons, right? Already, I think it's around chapter 10 of Leviticus. The very first high priests after Aaron are already offering strange fire. Israel's priests shared the people's alienation, but that doesn't mean that the priesthood itself was flawed. Now this is important because the writer is saying perfection did not come through that priesthood. But the priesthood was devised and ordained by God. In that sense, it was perfect. There were two ways in which it was imperfect. The first is the obvious way, which is that it was administered by flawed men. The priests who administered that priesthood shared the same corruption as the people they mediated for. That's an indictment on them, not the priesthood that they administered. But the priesthood itself was imperfect, not in the sense that it was corrupt or evil or worthless or or anything like that, but in the same way that we're going to see the law itself was imperfect. The priesthood was non-ultimate. It was imperfect in that it was impermanent. 
Yes, God had ordained it. Yes, God had devised it, but for a very specific role. And we'll see that this is true of the covenant itself, the law of Moses. This is the question that Paul is asking in Galatians 3, where he says, if everything was bound up in Abraham and the promise to Abraham, why then the law of Moses? Why the covenant at Sinai? Why did that come into the midst? If God's purposes were all through the promise, why does this thing get inserted in the midst? And he says it was to ultimately serve the cause of the promise until the seed should come to whom the promise pertain. So the law of Moses and the priesthood that was, that was defined and prescribed under the law of Moses was not some failed plan. It wasn't a, a mistake God had made or he didn't change his mind and say, let's try something new now. That, that really didn't work out the way I thought. It perfectly served its purpose according to its design. But it was non-ultimate. Indicated if in no other way, you say, well, how do you know that that's the case? How would Israel have known that was the case? Well, if in no other way other than the fact that Psalm 110 was given uh, you know, to David, but it was made known and became part of Israel's scripture in the context of the law of Moses. The promise of another priesthood that would be everlasting and through which God would establish his universal dominion, it's, it's the psalm of the great king priest. That psalm came in the midst of the Israelite theocracy, in the midst of the Levitical priesthood. The promise of a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That alone should have said to Israel, this thing under which we are living is not ultimate. It's not ultimate. It's not the end of God's purposes. So the first thing with respect to the imperfection of the Levitical order then is the relationship between the priesthood and the covenant. And the fact that the priesthood was trying to hold together a covenant relationship that was broken and defined by alienation. And that the priests themselves were subject to that same alienation. And in the midst of that came the promise of a new priesthood. The obvious implication is a priesthood that would not suffer those same problems and a priesthood that would actually resolve the problem that the priesthood was supposed to resolve in the first place. But the second piece of that is that this new priesthood would be an entirely new order of priesthood. Not a new priesthood within the established order, but a priesthood of a different order. The first sense in which it's different of a different order is that this new priesthood would be distinct from the Sinai covenant. The promise of a new priesthood came in the context of the Sinai covenant, the law of Moses, but it was distinct from it. Evident how? Well, first and foremost, because the one who represents it, the one who symbolizes it, Melchizedek, the king priest, his regal priesthood was outside of Abraham and outside of the Abrahamic covenant. And it was Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant that are really the issue in the Sinai covenant. 
So this is something that was promised inside of the Sinai covenant, but as something that was distinct from it. Psalm 110 makes that clear. It promised a future priest king according to a new order. A new order overtly indicated the impermanence of the present order, the Levitical order, and therefore its imperfection. The promise of a new order outside of the Sinai covenant says that this priestly order under which the Sinai covenant operates is impermanent, right? And in that sense, it's imperfect. By God's design, by God's design. So this new priesthood is outside of the Sinai covenant, but secondly, and just as importantly, it's associated with its own covenant. It's not only outside of the Sinai covenant, but it's associated with a new covenant. Just as the covenant with Israel, the Sinai covenant, was founded or based in the priesthood, so the implication is a new priesthood means a new covenant. A new covenant that also corresponds to and bears the same priestly, you know, priesthood covenant relationship as uh, the Levitical priesthood with the Sinai covenant. Same sort of correspondence. <clears throat> the writer says that where there is a change of priesthood, there's a change of law. Now, some interpreters have said, well, what he's saying is there's a new law of the priesthood. The law of the priesthood that that define and prescribe the Levitical priesthood, we have a new priestly law associated with Melchizedek. But that's not what the writer's saying. He's not talking about the narrow definition of the priesthood being changed. He's talking about the whole covenant associated with that priesthood being changed. And it becomes clear in the way he speaks. So when he says change of law, he's talking about a new covenant, this new law, therefore, isn't a new legal code. It's not, you know, a revised legal code. It's not a new set of commandments. You know, as often people say, law of Christ versus law of Moses or whatever. That gets us off track. It's not a new legal code. It's not a new priestly code. It's a new Torah a new disclosure, a new manifestation, a new uh, a relational structure defined and implemented by God, a new definition and administration of covenant relationship between God and his image bearers. That's what the law of Moses was all about. It wasn't about, here's a bunch of stuff to do, and if you do that, then you're righteous. It was about establishing what it looks like for human beings to actually be imaged children. So a new priesthood, if covenant is based in priesthood, a new priesthood implies a new covenant. But it's also obvious, it's also explicit, it's not just a matter of inference or implication, it becomes obvious in the nature of this new priesthood. Again, the writer will develop this more, but this as it sits right here. What is different about this priesthood that shows a different sort of covenant? 
It's a priesthood that is a regal priesthood. It's a priesthood in which the priestly function and the regal function are merged together. Why does that indicate a new covenant? Because that was absolutely, entirely precluded and prohibited under the law of Moses. There was no such thing as a priest king in Israel. It was a violation of the law of Moses to have a priest king. And in fact, it was impossible. Why? We talked about it before. Because in dealing with the 12 tribes of Israel in this thing called the law of Moses, God set out the priestly function and the royal function, both of which were critical because Israel was to be son of God. And we've seen how this idea of sonship involves a priestly dimension and a royal dimension, a a kingly dimension. But God assigned those to different tribes, different sons of Jacob. And the assignment of the regal function was to Judah. And it wasn't even the covenant that did that. It wasn't Sinai that did that. Jacob did that when he blessed his 12 sons. But clearly he was pronouncing God's own design. The law, God through the law of Moses, set apart the Levites to be his priests. All the priests came from the tribe of Levi. That's why the writer says when we consider this one of whom we're writing, uh, he wasn't of the right tribe. In fact, he couldn't even be a priest on the earth. He said if he was on the earth, he couldn't even be a priest. He's of the wrong tribe. He's of the tribe of Judah. Moses said nothing about Judah with respect to the priesthood. This new priesthood brings together the kingship and the priesthood in one person. And that itself should have told Israel that what God had purposed ultimately for the future is something beyond what we have now. And their expectation that what God was going to do when he brought in his kingdom was essentially resurrect the Israelite theocracy, they should have known that wasn't going to be the case. Because when God did this in the Messiah, the Messiah would reign as a priest upon his throne. This is back to Zechariah 6 again, right? The making of the crown and setting the crown on the head of the high priest. And Zechariah saying, behold, branch, the branch of David. He will branch out from where he is and he will build the house of the Lord and he will preside as a priest upon his throne. At least by the time of Zechariah, it was clear that in the Messiah, God was going to bring together the two strands of the priestly role and the kingly role in one man. That's the heart of the Melchizedek distinction. Priest of God Most High, King of Salem. So if you merge the kingship and the priesthood, you're moving outside of, you're actually even contradicting the Sinai Covenant. And God himself testified to that unbridgeable chasm between the kingship and the priesthood under the law of Moses in that the couple of times where kings tried to function as priests, what happened to him? What happened to Saul when, again, fearful of losing in battle and waiting for Samuel and Samuel doesn't come, he goes in and he burns incense to the Lord. What happens? God takes the kingdom from him. And later... 
way down past David, what happens when Uzziah presents an offering as the king of Judah? He's struck with leprosy. There's only one king in Israel who performed priestly functions and God was pleased with it, and that was David. Why? I thought you couldn't bring them together. It's because of the typological significance of David. You see David functioning as a priest in this thing of enthroning Yahweh on Mount Zion, the bringing in of the ark. And David is in the priestly ephod and dancing and leaping and offering burnt offerings as they're bringing this triumphal procession of the ark into Jerusalem to enthrone it in the city of David, enthrone Yahweh. And the reason that that was pleasing to God is ultimately because of the significance of that event. The one who David himself represented, that one, the son of David who would come, would enthrone Yahweh on Mount Zion as a king priest. And therefore, what David was doing was testifying proleptically and prophetically to the son to come from him. But other than David, there was no one else. There was no one else who could do that. So you have a distinction in terms of a priesthood, an order of priesthood outside of the Sinai covenant. One also that indicates a whole new covenant structure. And then lastly, uh, a priesthood associated with a new kind of priest new priesthood that merges the kingship and the priesthood, which, which means a new covenantal structure, but also a new kind of priest. The writer says that the Levitical priests were designated by God according to the law of a physical commandment. What he's getting at is that those priests were designated on the basis of the law of genealogy. They all were descended from Levi through Aaron. They were chosen or elected or designated as priests on the basis of a law of physical descent. He says, on the other hand, this new priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, his designation in keeping with the nature of his priesthood, is not according to physical descent, but the principle of the power of an indestructible life. Remember how he's already emphasized this abiding quality of Melchizedek, without father, mother, without genealogy, beginning of life, end of days. He lives on. And it's the notion that Melchizedek, his priesthood was his alone. It wasn't transferred to anyone else, and it continues on. It's never done away. It's never abated. You don't hear anything more about it. But the idea is that he is that king priest and that that he lives on in the sense that this hasn't been passed to anyone else or abrogated. And now that principle comes in this one who is that, uh, the one who fulfills that as a priesthood, a priestly work associated with an indestructible life. Corresponding again to Melchizedek. So the new priesthood then in closing emphasizes two features, both of which distinguish it in an absolute sense. The first is that this new order will merge the kingship and the priesthood. 
The second thing is that it's a priestly ministration that's marked by permanence. The imperfection of the Levitical order, the heart of that imperfection was its transience. It was non-ultimate. This priesthood is ultimate, it's permanent, and it's also distinguished in its preeminence over Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. You say, well, Jesus was a son of Abraham. If he's this priest, he was a son of Abraham. In a certain sense, he lived within this Abrahamic covenantal dimension, and that's true. But ultimately, Abraham became Abraham, and the covenant became what God intended it to be. The reality of Abraham and his function, the reality of the covenant associated with Abraham, were bound up in the seed to come from him. And so in a very real sense, what God promised to Abraham was yes and amen in the seed of Abraham. That's what Paul's saying in Galatians 3. Abraham, what God did with Abraham only became real and true and was actually realized in connection with this one who came, the Messiah himself. That's the sense in which he transcends Abraham. He transcends the covenant with Abraham because all of that became yes and amen in him. Portrayed again in Melchizedek's distinction and supremacy with respect to Abraham and the covenant. So this new covenant then, just, just as the, the Sinai covenant and its priesthood interpreted one another and corresponded to one another, so it would be with this new law, this new covenant, and the priest associated with it. This new covenant would be mediated by a unique king priest. The Levitical priests were not rulers. They were in the sense that they were teachers. They, they, they held that authority of instruction, but they didn't hold a kingly office. They didn't hold a regal office. This one will be a unique king priest. And what's also unique is that within this new covenant, this king priest who will embody in himself the truth of what the covenant itself represents will will bring about the fact that those for whom he mediates will also become what he is. In other words, they will become the kingdom of priests that Israel was to be. Exodus 19. What does Peter say? Having come to him, the living stone, you've become living stones in him. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are people for God's own possession. He uses all of this Israelite language to describe those who have become living stones in Christ the living stone. And he's building the sanctuary on himself, the place and the realm of true worship. His subjects, the subjects of this king priest, would also share in his regal and priestly status. The Levitical priests shared the same corruption and alienation of those they mediated for. With this king priest, those for whom he mediates will share in his authentic sonship, will, will share in that regal priestly quality that the covenant describes and prescribes. Remember, even the prophet Isaiah said, of this one who comes, I make you the covenant. 
Well, how can the Messiah be the covenant? Because the covenant defines and prescribes a certain kind of human being in relation to God. And he is that. He embodies in himself. That's the sense in which he fulfills the law. It's not that he ticks off a list of of a to-do list. He embodies in himself the truth of what the law of Moses, the covenant, was prescribing, which is that Israel, as seed of Abraham, will be son, servant, witness, disciple on behalf of the world, that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. A regal and priestly people. And the Messiah himself embodies that, but so do those that he presides over and intercedes for. The Levitical priests shared the corruption of the people. This priest shares with the people his own authentic sonship. And that includes also the power of an indestructible life. That power of an indestructible life that is the basis of his priesthood and therefore is the basis of the covenant is also the marrow of the understanding of those who are within that covenant. In other words, it's a covenant of life. It's a life-giving covenant. It is what God set in front of Israel through Moses. I give you life. I give you life and death. Choose life, right? The covenant was to be Israel's life, but it wasn't. But this is a covenant of life, this one associated with this new king priest. It, it has within its confines sons and daughters who share in the father's life. That's why you move from Isaiah 53 and the promise of this suffering servant to the promise that Zion, who's been stripped of children and been made barren, will now bear a multitude of children from, for God from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Children in truth, children who share in the life of the father. And so if Jesus' priesthood is the very heart of the Christian's confession, and it is, then it is absolutely critical that we understand his priesthood in the way that the writer is describing it here. He is the unique priest who mediates for his people, but he does so seated at the right hand of power. Think again about Romans 8 and Paul's great doxology. What shall separate us from the love of God? What does he ascribe it to? Christ Jesus who died, yea, rather, whose race seated at the right hand of God, continually interceding for us. Jonathan Edwards said, sovereignty without goodness is tyranny. But goodness without sovereignty is platitudes, bumper stickers, wishful thinking, get well soon, right? Best wishes. The glory of this priesthood is that the one who intercedes is himself the one who has all authority and power and dominion. Not only is he free of the corruption of the previous priesthood, he transcends all of that corruption and he has healed all of that corruption. And those who come to him are partakers of that in him. And I don't want to go down this path, but I think one of the most powerful and important arguments against the kind of traditional dispensational understanding of 
of, you know, the, the two comings of Christ and lamb and lion and, you know, coming to suffer, then coming to reign in glory and pushing this thing of kingship out to the end of the age it is I ask people, what then do we make of his priesthood? Is Jesus enthroned? I mean, is Jesus interceding as a priest for his people? And the obvious answer, even people that hold to a future kingship will say is, yes, of course he's interceding for us. Well, the scripture won't let you separate the kingship and the priesthood. He administers his priesthood as a king on his throne. He's not now a priest, but one day he'll come and be king. It's a regal priesthood. That's what the whole Melchizedek idea is about. And so if we're going to uphold in any sense the fact that we have the confidence that we have an, a, a resurrected, ascended Lord who is pleading for us and interceding for us, but we want to say, oh, but one day he'll take the throne of his father David, then we have just destroyed the whole notion of his priesthood. And we've certainly destroyed the effectuality of it. It's just best wishes. He will never lose, he will never relinquish his priesthood. The children of Israel watched these priests come and go. And even once a year when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, they saw him first go in and take an offering for himself. They knew these were imperfect men. They knew that this was never solving the problem. And the constant litany of priests and the, the constant presence of sickness and death, of mortality, told them this isn't it. This is a priest who will never lose or relinquish his priesthood. But he also mediates this creator-creature or creation relationship as the one possessing all authority and power to secure the ends that he seeks, that he pleads for. And so Jesus in himself has fulfilled and secured the covenant, this definition of, of divine human relationship according to the truth of who God is in relation to men and who men are in relation to God. He's fulfilled that and secured that in his own person. He's the true image son. He's the royal priest. But unto the end that the human race would enjoy that same covenant relationship and blessings. All the families of the earth will be blessed in him. And saints, that's our citizenship and that's our heritage. As I've said so many times, we tend to think of Jesus' priesthood simply that, you know, I go on with my life, but when things get sticky or they get messy or, you know, I'm having problems in my marriage or my job or my fight, you know, then I, I say, okay, Jesus is up there on the throne. I can call out to him and he'll come to my rescue. He's the guy that we call up, you know, when we need something. And, and we, because he's our priest, he's going to go to the Father. It's, it's like how Catholics think about Mary. She's just up there waiting to, you know, plead for them. Because, you know, Jesus is the son, and sons always listen to their mothers if they're good sons, right? So he's going to do whatever Mary asks him to do. Isn't that true, Carla? Sons always listen to their mothers. <laughs> This is the one who is enthroned as a priest, but saints, we are raised up and seated in that realm in him. We are already kings and priests to our God. That's our citizenship. That's our heritage. Citizenship, not in the sense of a place we're going to eventually, but the realm that we inhabit even now.
That has to govern our perspective and our interaction in this world. And in this time that we're in, and it is very frustrating, it's very discouraging, we don't look to men and governments. We look to the better hope that enters within the veil. Men come and go. Governments come and go. And as I've said, we look, we've lived in this little bubble where we think that everything is upright and there isn't corruption and people follow the law and they do it. It's never been that way. The procedure of the king has defined this world from the beginning. And it means that those who have power use their power to benefit themselves. It's always been that way. God told Israel, pick whoever you want for king. That's how he'll govern. And you say, well, God gave him David. Well, David governed that way too. Hey, I'm the king. It's good to be king. Bathsheba looks good. Bring her to me. Oh, I've now I got a problem. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that I'll send my commander out there to make sure that her husband gets killed in battle. It's good to be king. And I'm not trying to belittle David. This is the human condition. And and what we've seen in the last few days has simply put the spotlight on what's always been there. The world runs on corruption because the human heart is corrupt. It's always been that way. And a president's not an answer, and a Congress isn't an answer, and legislation isn't an answer. Uh, You know, even if we could have the perfect president for 20 years, the next guy comes in and wipes it all out. We have to stop looking anxiously about ourselves and trust in the Holy One of Israel. This is a perfect opportunity, saints, for us to actually be what the writer was challenging these readers to be. To manifest a steadfastness a sense of, again, a hope that enters into the veil where Christ has gone as a forerunner before us. So that's how he ends this section. This has brought in a better hope through which we draw near to God. Pick the perfect king and he's going to be a disaster. Pick the perfect president. Pick the perfect law. It doesn't matter. Pick the perfect judge. It doesn't matter. You can write the most perfect law and you put it in the hands of judges and and they they thrash it. People do what they want to do. And the world runs on corrupt power. But we're to be a people who understand. When we proclaim the gospel that Christ is Lord, as I said in my opening prayer, what we're saying is not God's in charge, do what he says. We're saying that there is a principle of rule and lordship that now governs this world through the enthroned priest king. And it's a governance that operates in antithesis to the way the world functions. Jesus said to his disciples, the rulers of the Gentiles call themselves benefactors, but they serve themselves. It's not to be that way with you. That's not how kingship works. You think I'm that kind of a Messiah. Get down and do what I tell you to do because I'm in charge. He says, I'm among you as one who serves. Lordship in, in the way in which God's kingdom functions is its power and resource to serve and to do good. And that's what we're, when we proclaim Christ as Lord, we're saying that's how we understand dominion. That's how we understand lordship. That's how we understand the rule of God in the world. And that's the way in which we call the rulers to account. 
And I'm not saying forget about voting or forget about politics in the absolute sense, but the way in which we make a difference is to testify to the Lordship of Christ in this sort of a way. And that illegitimizes all of the world's rulers, however good they are or however seemingly you know, suited to our ideology or whatever. Christ is Lord. And one day all things will be renewed and transformed in such a way that universal divine power will operate according to that principle of self-giving love. That's our hope. That's our confidence. That's what's come in the Messiah. Our citizenship is in heaven. Father, I pray that you would help us to hold our minds steadfast in these things. It's very easy to be frustrated. We look at an election that is corrupt and that is high-handed. We, we look at, at corruption that, that, that sneers and that mocks and that dares any sort of, of challenge. And we want to believe that, that in this country that, that there is the rule of law. But however much those sorts of things might happen at a minuscule local level, the world has never operated according to the rule of law. From the point of the fall, the world is the story of conflict and death in the pursuit of power. But thanks be to our God that you did not leave this creation to itself, but you labored with it, you labored within it, You called out a man to yourself, and in him you made a great nation, and you brought them forth, and you preserved them, and you you, you were as as a pedagogue to them, leading them, directing them, ultimately with the design that you would bring, bring forth from within that corrupted people. An Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile, one who would be the fountainhead of a new human race, the beginning of a humanity that you purposed from all eternity, and that in him all things would be renewed, such that your creation would at last be what you designed it, intended it, purposed it to be. And we are a part of that renewal. We ought to have hearts and minds that are set on that reality, And Father, we are to be good citizens and we are to to, to live in this world. But I pray that we live in this world as those who really bear the fragrance of Christ and the new creation in him. May we always be those who testify truthfully, truthfully in all that we are, in all that we do. Meet us in our discouragement. Meet us in our disillusionment. Cause us to see that you are the one in whom we have our hope. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when kings and countries and governments and legislatures are long gone, our God will be all in all. And all things will sing the praises of Father, Son, and Spirit. Strengthen us in these things. Give us good courage. Give us comfort. Give us peace. Help us to be faithful. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.